Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Nefflin. Thank you for joining us for the semifinals of our Bracket on a Boat. This is episode 13, and we're going to be talking about The Hunt for Red October from 1990, as well as The Poseidon Adventure from 1972. Mm. We have the oldest moves on the bracket at this point, yeah? Um, no, Jaws is still there. Here we go. Never mind. Yeah. Carry on. Jaws is only three years after The Poseidon Adventure, it's- which is fascinating because they feel like they are separated wildly by time yeah it's also weird how spread out the movies are through time at this point in the bracket usually it's like a lot of modern stuff and one old thing Mm -hmm. although that has caused a little bit of complications when i was looking for production info on the poseidon adventure Hmm. because i just was not familiar with a lot of the players in that Hmm. but we'll get to that eventually let's go ahead and start off with hunt for an october Heck yeah, let's start with that for October. This movie is so good. It is. I actually have a really hard time articulating what, like, I find myself watching it like, what should I take notes on it? Apart from just, this was a good scene. That was a good scene. Yeah, it's difficult to talk about. But looking into the production crew honestly doesn't help at all. (laughs) And let's get into why that is. How are you going to come here with answers, Shaggy? Come on. Uh, I waited. So... I've got a lot to say on the director. Do we want to start there or do we want to save him for last? Yeah, start with the director. That sounds fun. Okay. So the director is John McTiernan. Uh, other filmography that's most people would know, he directed Predator, Die Hard's 1 and 3, Medicine Man. Most people probably aren't familiar with it, but it's another film that he worked on with Sean Connery, and I bring it up here because I have seen it many times because it's in my dad's DVD collection. Mm-hmm. Last Action Hero, 13th Warrior, and Rollerball. Who's? Rollerball. It's I, I know her. <laughs> it's a film from 2002. Uh, we'll get into that because Rollerball will come up later. As you can tell from his filmography, he's just kind of like an 80s, 90s action director. Mm-hmm. Oh, like a pretty diverse one. Like Last Action Hero is like more sci-fi-ish. Die Hard is very straightforward, like now-ish. Last Action Hero isn't quite sci-fi-ish. It's more like a satire and pastiche of a, a lot of hyper-violent uh, 80s and 90s action films. Sure. Hang on. That's the one where the kid is really good at, at computer games, so they, beam, they only beam him up to, like, fight the war, right? No. What am I thinking of? I'm pretty sure you... Last Starfighter. There we go. Yes. Carry Last on. Action Hero is where a, a fictional character from an action movie comes into the real world mm-hmm. and, like, action movie things happen. Okay, cool. Yes. So it's, It stars Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, who else would it star? So yeah, a lot of this is kind of in the same space. That makes sense. Like, we have Predator, which is definitely sci-fi. We have 13th Warrior, which is more, like, historical fantasy sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Grendel was a Neanderthal. <laughs> but honestly, that's not the most interesting thing about John McTiernan. While working on Rollerball in 2002, he hired an, a private investigator by the name of Anthony Pelicano to illegally wiretap one of the film's producers, Charles Roven. He got caught, lied about it to the FBI... And then after seven years of court battles, spent a year in federal prison for it. Why? (laughs) He was trying to get dirt on the producer to then bring back to the studio execs to get more creative control over Rollerball. A a film about a future sport played on rollerblades. What a weird thing to go down for. (laughs) Also, his court battles lasted longer than the Confederacy. Yes. At first, he was... Sentenced to like four months in prison. They appealed it to the Ninth Circuit, and then he ended up spending a year there. 
Also, in the middle of all of that, in 2006, his ex-wife filed a civil lawsuit against him for invasion of privacy. For having that same private investigator wiretap her during their divorce negotiations. My god. <laughs> My god. John McTiernan, what are you doing? It gets better. No. <laughs> With all the legal costs and not having released a film in 10 years in 2013, while still in prison, he had to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. No. However, the bank sued him because they were pretty sure it was just a tactic to prevent the bank from foreclosing on his $9 million Wyoming ranch, and they wanted to move it over to Chapter 7 bankruptcy. To prevent the court from trying to liquidate his assets, he tried to use upcoming projects as collateral. Like, if you take away all of my assets, then I won't be able to work on these films and be able to pay you back, so you should let me keep everything. The court didn't buy it and uh, side with his creditors. Oh, no. <laughs> what? Wild. And did he ever make anything again? No. His, oh, my God. His last film uh, was in 2003, a film called A Basic. Oh, no. Before that was 2002 with Rollerball. I mean, honestly, kind of should stop there. So it was like the cap off at the end of the story. But so that is the... Wild, wild career of John McTiernan. Wow. Wow. I... Huh. For now. Like... <laughs> I guess. He, you never know. He's still alive. He could make a comeback. That's an uphill battle, though. He seems to have burned a lot of bridges in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. He gonna come back on TikTok. <laughs> uh, John McTikTok. While that is all broadly bad, I'm glad that it is not so awful that I cannot like his movies. It's shitty, but not, I can't watch his movie and not think about that kind of shitty. I'm not going to not think about it, but I'm going to not think about it in a very different way. I think part of it that helps is that he is, he is lost every time he's <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> Which helps. It does. Anyway, if we move on to the writer. Oh god, there's more? Yes. Uh, so, like, the, we have the screenplay, uh, in part written by Larry Ferguson, abridged filmography, stuff you may have heard of. He was a writer for Highlander, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and Alien 3. Not necessarily the same stuff, but definitely in that same space that, uh, McTiernan was in. Mm -hmm. That, like, somewhat high-concept action film. Mm -hmm. He also does appear in the film Hunt for Red October. He is, has a cameo as the chief of the USS Dallas. Oh, nice. Yeah. Which is kind of neat. Then we have cinematographer Jan DeBont. So he has a filmography, both as a cinematographer and a director. So we'll start with his cinematography work first. Stuff you may have heard of. Cujo, the adaptation of the Stephen King novel. Jewel of the Nile, which is a sequel to Romancing the Stone. And at one point where you were considering putting on this very bracket. He also was the cinematographer for the first Die Hard film. Mm -hmm. And for Basic Instinct. Oh no. So, again, kind of the same general space that the other two are in. Mm -hmm. As a director, we are already familiar with his work. He directed Speed, Twister, Speed 2 Cruise Control. God damn it. And the second Tomb Raider film. Not the most recent one from 2018, but the second one starring Angelina Jolie. Sorry, did you say 2018? Yeah. That movie came out 4,000 years ago. How has it only been two years since that movie came out? That was so long ago. Okay. Sorry, no, I'm just having a nice crisis. It's fine. That's fine. He's more talented as a cinematographer than as a director, I think. I would probably agree with that. Although, like, Speed and Twister are very good. Yeah. There is not a whole lot of 
pedigree in here that would make me convinced that they could pull off something like Hunt for Red October. I mean, looking at them, I understand why we get that action-heavy sequence at the end. I understand the scene transferring onto the Dallas with the helicopter. That all makes sense. But that's two very small parts of the film, and that's not why it's fucking amazing. (laughs) Although I think the action background makes sense, though. While I was watching, I think about how so many scenes are just the right amount of, like, build and release attention in the way that, like, action, comedy, horror all have. And so they're applying that same kind of mentality and sense of pacing and time to scenes we wouldn't call action, but they become action-like through their pacing and direction. Mm-hmm. It is something that Hot Fuzz does to a greater, perhaps greatest degree. Yes. Um, I would I would agree with you there. And I do, I do think there's a little bit of that here. I also think that a lot of the credit can just go to Tom Clancy for this. Sure. For, for the source material. Yeah, that's fair. And them not fucking it up. <laughs> yeah. And also to the actors who are doing a really good job of being just the right amount of whatever they needed to be. Yes. Jones is just the right amount of fun. Marco Ramius is just the right amount of like stoic and determined and sad. Mm-hmm. Professor Grant from Jurassic Park is also here and wants to go to Montana. <laughs> and honestly, a slightly tragic and sad character. Yeah. He just wants to raise rabbits. <laughs> okay. I mean... <laughs> and also have two wives. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking about Jurassic Park again. <laughs> Do we know how close this follows the original uh, Tom Clancy book? No clue at all. Okay. Oh, well. I did not look into that. That's fair. Probably should have, but I, I didn't. Oh, well. Like, I probably could have, but John McTiernan. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, John McTiernan. The John McTiernan's life story is the spy thriller that, um, that we really wanted. I spent like 45 minutes down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Less. I will say that this does have a lot of stylistic overlap with Die Hard. Yes. Not, not all the like action scenes per se, but the more quiet drama scenes. A lot of the conversations between Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman are ha- have this like very writerly tension that builds these characters really well. And the same that a lot of the conversations between a lot of the characters in in this film build the character and the tension in really fun ways mm-hmm. that elevate them above just their stereotypes, their their plot deviceness. Like a really great bit that I like is when Samuel's talking to Mark Ramius and he's talking about how like. Look, Putin could have caused complications. What did you think? He'd just go in sulk while we carried out our plans? Is that what you thought? Are you saying he was murdered? My God. Oh, stop whining, Yuri. But murder, how, how can so you So he was murdered. I have no problem with that. The man was a pig. But it's a decision we should have all made together. You are not in command here. That's a really interesting nuanced take on what's happening that elevates it from very simple tension of the ethics and <clears throat> of murder and it's more about the ethics of collaboratism, which is part of our conversation about communism and America and all that jazz. So it, it was a good use of, of themes that we could have had a much more basic version of if this yeah. was a lesser narrative. Yeah, That's also something that we haven't really dived into, is that the film starts off with Marco Rivius just murdering a political officer to get everything going, and it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, like, there's some tension in the air, but you can't really tell what, and then it's like, oh, well, that tension's gone. Yeah, like, in my notes, I just have, well, that escalated quickly. It's like throwing a Molotov cocktail. Like, your problem is gone, but you now have other problems. <laughs> but, and, but also, like, I mean, let's be honest. A lot of Russians die in American action films who maybe didn't strictly deserve to, but because it's Americans doing it, we're usually totally fine with it. So now, here it feels... Violent and scary because it's not like an American doing it in a heroic way. It's a, a Russian doing it in a like closed off space. And I think there are a lot of things to unpack here about the way we structure violence and who gets to do violence in our action narratives. I think part of it is also that it is 
like it is a tiny coup that is happening yeah with with that murder and i think that's another reason why it's a little bit jarring to the audience with action films we establish that there will be violence and we don't get that before the the murder happens it mm-hmm. just all of a sudden it's there and we are not prepared for it and it, i think that's one of the reasons it actually works incredibly well oh yeah i don't want to downplay how like effective that scene is by like mudding it with politics about the way we structure violence and things yeah yeah it's also a very like brutal death. It's not like quick and simple with a knife or whatever. It, you feel the way that his head is hitting the tables or whatever. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if I've talked about this previously for Hunt for Red October, but I think it's one of my favorite scenes. So we get Jack Ryan in the war room briefing everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, he does this whole spiel. He sits down and then everyone is talking and trying to figure out what's going on, sharing intelligence. And Jack Ryan poses his theory, gets called out on it as- Oh, come on. You're just an analyst. What can you possibly know what goes on in this mine? I know Ramey is general. And then he starts standing up to a general and James Earl Jones' character is like grabbing Jack Ryan's arms like, okay, calm down. <laughs> when he, just before he entered the world, like you've got to be confident, like- Look. No one understands this material better than you. Just give him a rundown on the sub and appraise you the stuff in your hand. He's liable to ask some direct questions. Give him direct answers. Tell him what you think. Come on. Mm-hmm. He has this kind of like very like mentorly like, you'll be fine. Just present your case well. All slides are there. Just You're the expert on this. You got this. Yeah. And then, well, maybe you presented too hard. No. <laughs> yeah. And then specifically when he's called out for not being an expert, that's where it's like, uh, and that tells you so much about the tension in that room there and that they're all Americans, but they're not all on the same side. Yeah. Which is the thing that I think is on the present of this film that your country does not equal your allegiance, which I think is really fun. Mm-hmm. It also plays into a part I really like about uh, how likable Jack Ryan is as a character. And part of it is that he's very driven. When he shows up to James Earl Jones' uh, office, James Earl Jones is like, oh, tell me about your wife, your children, all that jazz. I don't know why I made him rush in there. Nah. And Jack's like, they're fine, they're fine. So the submarine. <laughs> it's that, like, that intensity and laser focus that kind of gives him this delightful clarity that other poses really well with Mark Ramius' same kind of laser focus, but that isn't quite so driven. They're both these very people who know what they want and what needs to happen, but... They're surrounded by people who have all these uncertainties about it. And them having to play off those uncertainties is really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that they would kind of bond so quickly when they finally meet each other. Mm-hmm. Which, I'm watching this with with Mike, and he didn't realize that it takes like an hour and a half for Jack to actually get onto the sub to track these guys down. Like, mm-hmm. it takes a while for Jack to get into position to be part of the narrative. Which I think is a thing that really works, is that there are so many obstacles between... What's happening with the Russians, what's happening with the Americans, that they're playing catch-up for so many steps, mm-hmm. which allows us to kind of have the Russians just do their thing for a bit and not have to worry about, like, spy versus spy at first. Yeah. I think another another reason that Jack Ryan is so compelling, at least to us, in round one, this went up against Battleship. And there's this huge dichotomy between the two, where in Battleship, scientists and smart people are cowardly and you should not listen to them and you just do what you need to do. Here, the smart people are the heroes. There's no lone ranger going off and doing what needs to get done. It is all very collaborative on both sides, be it Russian or American. 
in Battleship, you have this very cocky, jocular approach to things, and that's not, and like the more jockey you are, the more you get to be right in this thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Huffman or October, it's more about how like like how focused you are on what you want. The, the the stronger your will, the more you achieve things. Like Jonesy, same thing. Where he's like he's really sure that he knows how this stuff works, and and he knows that more than anybody else does. And they listen to him because they're like, yeah, the the rules of this universe are that you um you're sure of yourself, so then you achieve things. So yeah, someone who has more time than I could probably go through and take a look at how military mo- movies portray that sort of dichotomy between intelligence and cocky heroism and views of the American public on the military. Yeah. Well, a lot of the like intelligence tends to wind up being more of the historically grounded kind of, more of the looking backwards tactical approach to things, mm-hmm. where you're exploring how these wars were won with correct moves, as mm-hmm. opposed to more presentish or looking forward kind of narratives where it's all about like the the action and excitement of someone doing things. Red October is definitely a more looking backwards ish movie yeah. and is interacting with moves and counter moves like a chess game. It's also just kind of a thing in submarine films. Like submarine combat tends to be very slow, very deliberate, like like a chess match. And other war films, not necessarily. A perfect example is actually Star Trek versus Star Wars. Mm. Star Trek is submarine combat. It's slow, it's deliberate, it's very back and forth negotiation sort of thing. Whereas Star Wars is about dogfighting. Yep. (laughs) And they're two completely different things. And part of that is just the limitations of when they were created and the tone that's set for their universes. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't think of a lot of great space action scenes from... Any Star Trek thing. I guess there's some punch-ups in DS9. There's a, a pretty cool Borg fight in the in First Contact, but that's all I got off the top of my head. Whereas, we have lots of great space scenes in Star Wars. It is well known for having a few good action scenes in space. Perhaps even many of them. <laughs> Hashtag, this is pod racing. And a part of that slowness and that submarine combatness and the historicity thing is that a lot of things that make military movies, not necessarily like action films, but military movies, uh, successful is having a sense of what the territory is that is being gained or lost. Uh, it's the thing that I don't like much about The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits is where you just have this big field of people punching and fighting and, and roaring and screaming and stuff, but you don't really know how close the orcs are to breaking this line or how, or like, are there a harem, like, close to the gate so they can shore it up or do they still have a long way to go, etc. And it's very not clear. And so as a battle, but not one that you understand. Uh, Red October does a really good job of constantly giving us maps and showing lines and, and sharpie marks and directions so we can always know what's happening, and I'm so grateful. It keeps it from being just a lot of people talking, and it's giving the audience um, diagrams of what's going on, and that's a really kind thing to give to us. Yeah, and it also explains exactly what's going on where the Soviet Navy is pushing the Red October towards the U.S. coast where it will be within their waters, and get shot down. Mm-hmm. And there's a time limit on that. We keep getting updates and figuring out exactly what's happening. We found out that there's like a hunter sub after the Red October specifically to blow it up. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're exactly right. They do a really great job of giving us a sense of scale, a sense of how long it's going to be until the point of no return. Yeah. There's a bit... Early on that I'm intrigued by, that's kind of digging into our structures of having things in America and money that are presented in contrast to like the USSR's differing approaches to, to ownership and property. Mm-hmm. Where Jack is talking about how his daughter wants him to buy a little brother for her. Like, I mean, obviously, the joke is that kids don't understand how babies work. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. It, it, it is a good joke. Everybody laugh. Mm-hmm. But 
I think it's still kind of tying into this critique of the way we structure what thinking and how to get them in America that is kind of all through this movie. Maybe. I think we may be reading a little too much into it. That may be true. I think that's partially just the Overton window on American materialism has moved leftward in the 30 years since this film was released. Sure. And like you talk about buying a little brother which and saying, look, that's not how it works. But the thing is, in the United States, costs an average of $30,000 to have a kid. That's ridiculous. Yep. That is utterly ridiculous. Yep. We gotta stop doing this. Yep. I mean, having kids, not having it costs a lot of things. That's fine. I mean, people have, and they're complaining, like, why no have babies? Economy die. <laughs> <laughs> Economy die. That's why I don't have no babies. <laughs> wow, that sucks. I was also looking up that, like, because I'm not paying for childcare, because I, you know, don't have kids, I could, like, buy a house with the cost of childcare from zero to five before it gets to school. That is utterly wild. That's why they want schools to open back up. Boy, howdy, I hate it. This, this got way too real, way too fast. Let's go ahead and bring things down and move over to the other film we're talking about this week. And as we draw a thread between these two films, I have a discussion to uh, take it to the middle. Who has a better sweater game of our protagonists? Between Reverend Scott and Jack Ryan. <laughs> I fucking hate Reverend Scott's sweater. <laughs> so much. Wow. I was kind of in the space of it's fine and then Jack good sweater. That's what I'm making the point about. But... You really hate it that bad? It, it annoys the crap out of me, yes. Oh, okay. I think it's ugly. Oh, well, fair enough. <laughs> Asked and answered. Cool. So, um, Jack Ryan gets to have a better sweater game. Yes. So, the sweater's ugly in Poseidon Adventure. What's good in Poseidon Adventure? We haven't already talked about. Um, well, before we get into that, I want to talk about production stuff again. Yeah, go ahead. So, we have the director, Ronald Neem, and... I don't have a lot to talk about with the production crew on this because I'm not super familiar with film in the 50s and 60s, and that's where most of these people worked for a lot of these. Poseidon Adventure was uh, towards the end of their careers. I'm pretty sure all of them have done things afterwards, but their careers kind of trailed off because they just got old. Yeah. Shit happens. And so I wasn't really able to find anything else directed by Ronald Neem that I was familiar with that I could, like, talk about. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, a lot of this stuff looks like we are a male and female romantic lead and we are doing hot, sexy things, but PG-rated. We're just looking at each other and having cheekbones. That kind of thing. <laughs> I, I see with how heterosexuals mate. He also did uh, The Problem with Jean Brody, which is really good. Um, I do have a little bit more on the writers and cinematographer. So, as far as the screenplay, we have Sterling Siliphant and Wendell Mays. Those are great names. Yeah. Sterling is probably the more interesting of the two. So he has credits on In the Heat of the Night. Hmm. Nice. Very influential film, won an Academy Award. We had a lot of conversations about that way back in Lion King. Yeah, because that line from Boomba. <laughs> Ridiculous. Full circle. Anyway, he also has writing credits on The Enforcer, which is the third in the Dirty Harry film series. He also wrote Over the Top, which is the arm wrestling sports movie starring Sylvester Stallone. I have additional questions. We don't have time for them right now. I can't believe I didn't tell you about this during our sports bracket. You might have. I might have just like blocked it out because I just didn't have room for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure like this was in contention for our extra innings, but it got bumped by the curling movie. Well, absolutely. You don't. You don't. <laughs> Listen, you pull out all the stops to make sure that you have the time for the R-rated curling movie. Yeah, which also has Leslie Nielsen in <laughs> 
in a serious role again. Yep. Hey, full circle. Yep. It's not full circle. We're getting smaller and smaller circles. Oh, he also was uh, involved in the early years of the Mickey Mouse Club. Mm. He was also relatively close friends with Bruce Lee. Hmm. He's also learned martial arts from him. And apparently, like, they were pretty close because uh, he eventually, like, moved to Bangkok and converted to Buddhism. Huh. All right. Yeah. Cool enough? Yeah. He seemed like a like an interesting fellow. Uh, there's also plenty of other work that I was less familiar with that he has worked on. That has a long and storied career. Yeah. Then we have Wendell Mays. The only other film that I was familiar from him was the original 1974 Death Wish. Some of you may be familiar or at least aware of the recent remake starring Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. We kind of didn't need. No, we definitely didn't need. Yeah. For those not familiar, it's one of those like dad thriller aged man. His wife is fridged, so he does violence to many people things. Yeah. We didn't need that in this century. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we needed it in that century, but also <laughs> I haven't seen it. I, I wasn't there, so who knows? Yeah. Then we come to cinematographer Harold E. Stein. I was familiar with two films, his uh, filmography as a cinematographer. The Incredible Mr. Limpet. Okay. So for those of you unfamiliar with The Incredible Mr. Limpet, it stars Don Knotts, and he gets turned into a fish. An animated fish. Of course. That's about all I know about the movie. I I saw clips of it growing up because it was, again, one of the the films my dad would watch on many occasions. Let's do a bracket of just your dad's films. I'd really like to nod. (laughs) I've seen those enough times already. That's fair. Also, I don't want to have to watch, like, iRobot again. Honestly, a bracket of films that, like, my dad and I watched would be fine. It'd be, like, some Jurassic Park, some Galaxy Quest, some Clue, some uh, Master of Disguise. <laughs> the, the other film that Stein worked on that I want to talk about is MASH. Oh. Not the television show, but the actual film. Mm-hmm. Which, very different. <laughs> so, I might have talked about this before. My parents have a running habit of... Grabbing the movie version of a thing, thinking it's the TV show, and not realizing what they're going to stick their kids to. Oh no. That movie has a lot of, like, intriguing interactions with sex and homosexuality. Yeah. Um, and, and the film does definitely hew closer to the source material than the television show does, but that's also because the television show was mostly using it as a mouthpiece to talk about the Vietnam War, but obfuscating it by MASH being set in Korea. Mm-hmm. And I've seen parts of the MASH film. At the time, was very uninterested in engaging with it because I am a huge fan of the television show. Mm-hmm. And it's just not the same. My memory of it is that it's very not strong. It's very episodic. Um, I think there needed to be more of a through line and it needs to be more like a TV show. But <laughs> as, a, as its own thing. Yeah, it's, it's kind of this anthology sort of film. Mm-hmm. Which anthologies can be fine, but... They don't usually work out super well. There, there needs to be some kind of thing to latch on to. I think part of it is that like, with, with the MASH film, it's an anthology, but it's all the characters that are in the same, appearing in each other's stories. Mm-hmm. And I think the more successful anthology films I've seen are just completely separate. And they're just kind of, they have a thematic through line as opposed to a narrative one. Mm-hmm. Or if there is a through line, it, it's subtle. It's like something in the background or there's like a character is passing a baton along. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great one called Southbound that is four or five horror stories that all go in a loop. So a character will move from one to the next to like set us off, and then we we be killed by whatever the thing is for that that part of it. But then the character in the last one winds up starting the movie over again. Interesting. Yeah, it's really fun. 
So that's that's kind of what I have to talk about for the production crew. Hmm. I don't recognize a lot of these movies, so I can't comment on like how much it makes sense for these directors to create this particular thing. Yeah. I will say though, like the Poseidon Adventure doesn't it doesn't feel antiquated if that makes sense. Like it doesn't yeah. fe- it feels fairly new and fresh for its time, even though it was from these veteran directors. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel as dated as some other films from that far back do. Yes. I definitely think it has some of the narrative sensibilities that Hollywood has built on. Mm-hmm. And I think it's aged reasonably well. Mm, I think the gender politics are a bit messy, but apart from that... Yeah. yeah. Like, that has not necessarily aged well, but now they have things made today, so... <laughs> Earlier today, I, I saw on Twitter talking about the 2002 Spider-Man film and some of the quips and one-liners from Spider-Man and how well they've aged and it hasn't even been 20 years yet. Wow. Comedy is like milk. So, yep. Speaking of the weird gender politics of this film, I know we've talked about it a lot, but we need to talk about Mrs. Rogo again. I don't want to. I'm going to be sad and angry the whole time. Mostly what I want to talk about is that they bring her in and establish that she is a former sex worker and they don't really do anything with that it mostly feels like a narrative excuse for putting her in a lot of skimpy outfits i'll allow it i think that a reason may have been i mean i don't know the the writer's approach to these things but they needed her to be like scrappy she often is pretty scrappy in situations mm-hmm. and the most reasonable way to achieve that is that she was formally involved in like the, the criminal underworld, but they didn't want her to be too much of a criminal because that might make her unlikable. So she's doing crime things that are not bad. It shouldn't be crimes. But that might have been the approach of like, well, this gives her access to like criminal background so she can make chicanery roles or whatever, but not be an actual bad person. Honestly, I think the Poseidon Adventure where one of them like, is a murderer or whatever would be actually kind of fun. A serial killer, but not like someone who's doing serial killings right now. He just also happens to have eaten people in the past. Put Hannibal Lecter in a boat and turn it upside down. Yeah, three face on top of that. Excellent. Uh, I mean, I can buy that as a reason that they would want to do that, but it feels like there are much easier ways to have a woman who is opinionated and won't take shit without making her a sex worker. Absolutely. Even in the 70s? Absolutely. I can understand why they did that. I don't think they needed to. Admittedly, there are some things that don't come up either, like uh, Belle Rosen being super into trains. Well, that is more of a like character quirk than a character trait, if that makes sense. Yeah. I would say that the, the narrative thing that defines Belle's character is her fatness mm-hmm. and wanting to see her grandson. Yeah. And both of those come up repeatedly and are like talked about and dealt with in the film. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure how Mrs. Rogo's history of sex work would come up in the film, in, given the plot, but... Yeah, I will grant you that. Mm-hmm. But that's my point. It's like, why are you going to introduce this plot element and then not really engage with it? Especially because it, it just seems exploitative. Yeah, that's true. I think that a very talented writer could have found a way to bring that in somehow. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure off the top of my head what that might be, but... Yeah. Maybe she has some sort of medical knowledge just from, like, making people feel good that comes in handy here. She knows how to tie knots. I will say that exploitation is not necessarily out of the screenwriter's wheelhouse. Uh, Sterling Silphant did work on Shaft Goes to Africa. God, okay. <laughs> well, while it, it is exploitative, I think it could be a lot worse. Like, it's... Yeah. We both were like, ooh, when, uh, I think it's when, like, uh, Susan has to take her pants off for some reason. Like, the, she has to lose her, lose her skirt for mm-hmm. a thing, and 
The camera doesn't leer on her all that much, thankfully. Yeah. She also, like, has shorts on underneath. Yeah. So it's less of an issue, but I was... <laughs> Sorry. I just, let me just, like, probably like a skit or parody where it's the same movie, but everyone's in their underwear all the time, including including Mrs. Rose and including the detective, not including the kids. <laughs> yes, definitely not. Yeah, But I will readily admit that this is not as bad as it could be. Like, when they first introduced Linda Rogo and established her as a former sex worker, I was like... Oh no, this is 72. I don't expect a lot from this. I don't expect this to be handled well. And, I mean, they didn't handle it poorly. They just didn't handle it at all. Right. Which is better, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I will say that while Hollywood and culture at large tends to treat sex workers as disposable people, this film at least treats her death as a thing that matters. It's very sad. It compels a lot of character motivation it's still not great they're freaking a character but i'm glad that she isn't like treated by the other characters as lesser for her history apart from her husband and even then complicated i don't know i would definitely say that her death is lesser than most of the other deaths in the film that's true like even crew and acres there's at least a fight of detective rogo and reverend scott about like rogo not doing enough to try and save him i told you to keep everybody rounded up well, Mr. Rogo did the best he could well, to try to get You don't have to defend it. me. Now, look, preacher, I've had just about enough out of you. Who do you think you are, God himself? He was hurt. He needed your protection. All right, so he was hurt. The boat tilted and he fell. The shaft blew up and he's dead. And that's it. No one really has that conversation about Linda. No, although it does compel that whole, like, big rant against God that the Reverend Scott gives. What more do you want of us? We've come all this way, no thanks to you. We did it on our own, no help from you. We didn't ask you to fight for us, but damn it, don't fight against us. Leave us alone. How many more sacrifices? How much more blood? How many more lives? I don't know. I figured that he was going to be doing that anyway. That's true. Like, that is so in character for him. That's... I fucking hate Reverend Scott. It's very bad. He's such an asshole, and so is Detective Rogo, and the film loves to pit the two against each other, and I'm like, I don't care about this because I don't agree with either one of them. Honestly, imagine if you just somehow took Detective Rogo out of the equation and it was Linda and Reverend Scott butting heads. That could be so fun. Yep. That'd be actually a very like fun, compelling narrative. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then you could tie in like Reverend Scott wanting to like save Linda. Mm-hmm. And he'd be like, no, I don't need saving. Yeah. See, there we go. We figured out a way to do this that's not shitty and actually engages with the whole sex work thing. Mm-hmm, exactly. And depending on how, the, how it plays out, you could have a conversation about like what saving means mm-hmm. to these different people. What I'm saying is this is now a self-saved adaption. A film that we have also talked about, see our prep school bracket. Let's <laughs> put all those characters on a boat and turn it upside down. <laughs> Welcome to our new podcast, putting characters on a boat and running it upside down. <laughs> this is a thing that's Hunt for Red October does better than The Poseidon Adventure. Both these movies um, have a lot of, like, slow set-piece scenes, but because The Poseidon Adventure is just as one group together for most of the, th- of the time, and Red October has four or five groups or ships or situations or whatever, the slowness and the pacing of each scene doesn't feel as slow. Because things feel new and fresh, we're not, like, dragging on over time. Mm-hmm. And things happen off-screen in groups that we're not with. Mm-hmm. So, that, like, the plot feels like it's constantly moving forward. They're keeping that tension up. I I think another problem with the Poseidon Adventure is that most of the obstacles that the survivors are facing on the Poseidon are pretty much the same. It's like, oh, there's 
there's something that we have to climb over or swim under. And like, there's not enough differentiation in the obstacles to last the whole film. There's never time when they have to convince someone to reveal information or get some sort of mechanical thing working. I don't think. Not not that I can recall. Like, even Speed 2 Cruise Control tried to vary it up. (laughs) You're right. In that respect, Speed 2 Cruise Control is a stronger narrative. (laughs) In that very singular way. (laughs) No, I would also... Definitely watch a Poseidon Adventure remake that's had Sandra Bullock in it. There's, there's a reasonable amount of female agency in the Poseidon Adventure. However, all the women get like narratively punished by the end of it. So I'm not sure if it counts. Yeah. And the woman with the least agency, Susan, is the one that survives. Yeah. Which is not ideal. Nope. Susan is so easy. Like, have, have her work through her despair by like the end of second act, start of third act. Then the, uh, the other crew starts to despair. And then have her like bust out with that whole... like. There's got to be a morning after something. Let's just like bring it all back in and her be like the motivation factor. So easy. Oh, wait, no, I'm thinking of, of um, the singer, not uh, not Susan. Oh. We forgot her. Yeah, we merged the two characters in our heads, didn't we? I didn't merge the two characters. I just completely forgot about her. Noonie, that's her name. Yeah, because she's such a nothing character. <laughs> she's really nothingy. It's a pity. She could have been fun. She could have been like something, but. Mm-hmm. I get that they're exploring like the trauma of the disaster with her. I just don't find it compelling. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm thinking again about uh, Bell Rose and essentially tricking reference guy into shutting up for two minutes so she can talk at him. It's so good. Yep. Uh, and now I'm sad about Bell Rosen. Speaking of being sad about Bell Rosen, want to talk about uh, things that fell apart? Yeah, let's go ahead and get into our ship of Theseus award. So, what ship is more intact at the end of the film? I mean, it's got to be the Hot Red October. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is the one ship that blows up in Hunt for Red October, but the it's. The Hunter, yeah. Yeah, it's the Hunter sub that. They get to shoot itself with a torpedo, which is ridiculous, but fantastic. Very fun. Yeah, whereas the Poseidon, is, it's pretty gone. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think it's pretty clear where that's going. The Red October gets to... I mean, I'm pretty sure the Red October has won every ship of Thesis award that it's gone up against, because mm-hmm. nothing bad happens to the Red October. <laughs> I mean, it is dismantled a few times from within by the saboteur, but yeah. even then, it's like, I pull it apart. Yeah. Apart, like, pretty much you can hold in your hands. I mean, like, yeah. And the thing is, it's still functional by the end of the film. Right. Which is wild, because the plot of the film is that Marco Ramius wants the ships to not be functional anymore. Yep. Uh, irony. Yep. Uh, I think it's time to get into our final vote. It's it's Red October. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty common. Like, we have kind of nudged the Poseidon Adventure along at every opportunity. It's just slightly better than the other film, and its luck has run out at this point. Sure has. Because it, it went up against, what, Hotel Transylvania and, and Waterworld? Yeah. Really, I feel like Waterworld is better than Hotel Transylvania. Oh, Hotel Transylvania went up against uh, Captain Phillips. Oh, that was it, yeah. Yeah. Mm, yikes. <laughs> yeah, that, that quadrant of the bracket was filled with a lot of not great <laughs> stuff. I think the Poseidon Adventure is damned by being... A less good version of itself. It could be a lot more, but because of the specific moves they make with the characters, it just doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. But I still but I still want it to be better. That's kind of why I'm so yeah. attached to it. And I will readily admit we're probably being very hard on this because we're looking at it from 2020. And we're also not looking at a lot of the other films that came out at the time. We're judging it by our standards as opposed to the standards of when it was created. But that's art. Right, and we can't really, we can't go back to the 70s to judge it. Yeah, I mean, we could watch a bunch of other 70s disaster films and judge it, but that's... That's not fun. I don't (laughs) want to do that. I mean, we could, but that's a lot of work for a podcast that we're not getting paid for. (laughs) 
I am excited about watching um, older movies for the sake of uh, the podcast for their next bracket. And if you want to make sure that you're uh, that you're caught up to uh, the Bride of Monster bracket, you're going to have to make sure you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. But before we get there, what's up next week? Next week, we have the other half of our semifinals, which will decide what is going up against Hunt for Red October in the finals, and it will be between Jaws and Life of Pi. Both movies about men grappling with very large animals in places they maybe shouldn't be. <laughs> well, no. The, the shark is in the sea. That's where sharks belong. I mean, until the time where it like devours the back half of a boat and starts to climb up it. It's true. The boat is still in the sea. <laughs> it's true. We hope you join us next week for that. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.